Hello, everybody. Today is Wednesday, June 27th, and we're bringing you Block Digest number 109 at block height 529,487. So, uh, hello, everybody. Uh, greetings from Shinobi Monkey, and we got a full house again today. Uh, Mr. Rick, what's going on? Hey, everybody. How's it going? What's up, man? Going good. What's going on, Janine? Greetings from someone who has no interest whatsoever in the current soccer games going on, or as they call it in Europe here, football. What? It's really a, a good one. Uh, they call uh, it football. All right. Sports are stupid. That is an objective fact. What's going on, Acnix? <laughs> uh, I can confirm that sports are, in fact, uh, stupid. So, uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And how's everything with you today, Nopar? Terrible. Not going to finish for the presentation. Yes, you will, my friend. You got to put on that grind mode hat. I have faith in you. <laughs> Crunch time. All right. So uh, before we dive in it, though, uh, Janine kind of wanted to say a few words that, uh, you know, at least I pretty much agree with. But uh, if you want to kind of get that out of the way, Janine. Yeah, uh, so in the past week or so, and especially the last few days, we've received uh, questions from a number of people about what is going on with JW, uh, especially because he recently announced uh, in the last day or so that he may be starting to sell seminars for $200 an hour. Uh, I think it's mostly focused on cryptocurrency, cryptocurrency investing. And I just want to, at least from my side, and if anyone disagrees, they're free to say so, but I want to make very, very clear that Block Digest is not involved in any way in these seminars that are seem to be focused on giving cryptocurrency investment advice. And at least in my case, um, I cannot personally provide any kind of endorsement or recommendation as to whether he is knowledgeable or qualified enough to give such advice. Um, the reason I just want to say that is because we have had a number of conversations with him about this before and on the topic of what constitutes investment advice and how it's a very, uh, at least legally, and also in some cases ethically, uh, uh, murky area. So I just want to make that clear that, you know, he's he's been a guest and a presenter on Block Digest for a number of times, but I don't want anyone to get the impression that that constitutes endorsement of his ability to give investment advice. So I just want to make that clear. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, it's, uh, I kind of wholeheartedly agree with that. You know, my attitude as far as when we all started doing the show is, you know, the price has no place here. Like, you know, I trade personally on my own time, but, you know, I'm definitely not what you would care. And I think it is, frankly, irresponsible to advise people what to do with their own money in terms of investment. Because, you know, no matter how much information you have, no matter how certain about what you think is going to happen, you know, the world throws curveballs. And I think it's very irresponsible to be giving people advice about what to do with their money because at the end of the day things can implode on themselves people can lose money and i 
I don't know. I just, I, I don't think it's really ethically responsible to be advising people to do things that could affect their livelihood or their wealth, especially considering that at the end of the day, everybody has bills to pay. Everybody has things to take care of. And what you do with your money in terms of investment should be done uh, as a result of your own cognizance, your own thought process, and should, should not should not be done in a way where the responsibility can be hung on somebody else's head. Yeah. But, and I also want to quickly, quickly clarify as well that in case anyone has the idea that because there was kind of an argument going on between apparently JW and tone. And I also say that I do not in any way endorse or recommend tones advice either. Um, even though he has been <laughs> at least commenting on the cryptocurrency space, a number of years longer than JW has, which that uh, that may give him some cred, but I don't I don't take side in this in this argument. I do not take sides. I just say blanketly, I'm not providing endorsement for either of them or recommendation or any of that. So, <laughs> wow, yeah, like seems like about a I guess like a little over a month ago, everything started to happen where I kind of like took a little bit of a sidestep and everything uh, when I came back you know, seems to be all over the place, but I guess this is something where, I don't know. I mean, like, uh, you know, we picked up JW, uh, back there in December and we were, uh, you know, just having interesting conversations and, you know, controversial conversations and everything, but he does seem to have like these different ideas and different things that he works on and these projects that he's passionate about. And I guess he's moved on to a seminar now, which I'm interested in. This is the first I've heard of it. I didn't know about this, but um, yeah, I mean, like, you know, we can say with certainty, uh, you know, JW started relatively recently and, um, you know, seems like a bright guy, but, you know, as far as like endorsements and all that go, I don't, yeah, I think I'd have to agree with the uh, panel here that it's just like, uh, we'll, you know, you really want to be confident with people before you start making that sort of thing. And, um, you know, I mean, like, I wish him the best in whatever he's doing, because I mean, like, I really kind of, I like the idea of like the uh, MathBot project. And uh, one of those things he was talking about with cloud mining and emergement mode mining. I mean, like, he's got some some ideas that are interesting. And I wish he'd like, you know, move forward, keep moving forward with those, which I think he is, but it's just sort of like he gets these other projects. And, yeah, I don't think he's too much. I don't know. He's not too keen on, um, you know, slowing down once he gets the idea going. So, um, yeah, I, I'm I'm in agreement with the panel. It's uh, it's upsetting, you know, a little bit upsetting. I hope that, uh, you know, I don't know. He's probably doing some experiment with people losing money to educate them or something. <laughs> I don't know. It's JW. So well, what I do not endorse is that. Uh, there is a digest drinking game. Whenever Rick says, uh, I don't know, or whenever she says, mm -hmm, then you have to drink. But I do not endorse this. Hey. I do not. It, it yeah. is Christopher Jennings and Poseri's comments. I do not endorse this <laughs> drinking game. That'd be a fun game okay. right there. My idea. Is that you have to start chugging when I start talking and cannot stop chugging until I stop oh, talking. Oh, Shinobi, mm -hmm. I don't want to die. <laughs> I'm going to be all pepped up, man. I'm going to be playing along with coffee. Ah, <laughs> oh, man. But, uh, and, 
I mean, I'm just going to add one more note onto that. So none of this was meant to be personal in any way. It's just that I've been, uh, I've been involved with Bitcoin since like late 2014 and I don't even feel comfortable giving investment advice. And so I feel like, you know, that's kind of something <laughs> if, if I don't feel comfortable, then I don't feel comfortable recommending other people to do that kind of thing. So, or at yeah. least not people who have been around for, you know, less than I have. So I just, I don't feel comfortable being associated with giving, like re uh, lending credibility to someone giving investment advice because. Yeah, I think uh, that investment advice carries a whole lot, a little bit more weight to it where, uh, you know, I don't know, I always, in my explanations and explaining Bitcoin and people get excited about the possibilities, I always sort of reiterate, like, I'm not telling people to go buy Bitcoin. I'm just like explaining this process of what we're trying to do. And, uh, you know, just because, uh, yeah, sometimes just the bullish sentiment can be, I guess, felt like I'm saying, go buy it, go buy it. But I, I mean, like, I have to reiterate because, uh, yeah, I don't want people to take my advice and then go make a decision with all their savings. That's uh, it's a lot of weight. Mm -hmm. But, you know, yeah, you know, like Janine said, there's nothing really personal here. We just want to be very clear about what we are and are not endorsing. But uh, on that note, I guess, uh, slide along into the first story. Um, mm -hmm. So there is a, uh, a small island nation in the Pacific called the Marshall Islands. And I think I do believe we've mentioned it uh, briefly in the past. They have passed um, the Sovereign Act, which is essentially um, a legal act to create their own cryptocurrency, which they plan to launch uh, with an ICO at some point in the future. Um, it's not really been too much uh, clear details on how that's going to unfold yet, but it, it is actually a legal bill that they have uh, passed in their government. So that is something kind of hanging on the horizon but um it's it's a really small um country you know th there's only around fifty thousand people um living on the islands but kind of the, the one thing that really made me want to touch on this is you know it's a very isolated country in terms of how, how the economies run like um you know there's there's really only um i think like two banks that uh, have any kind of presence on the island and uh, Western Union is really the uh, the only method of internationally moving money outside of, uh, you know, the the banks they have established there. And it's, it's really like a, a big example uh, of an economy that's kind of just hacked together in a very MacGyver like fashion. But um, Lately, the, the IMF and a lot of other like big financial institutions um, internationally have been kind of coming down uh, on this country in terms of the, the anti-money laundering uh, regulations and risks that they present. And this has led to um, the first Hawaiian bank, which is a, a unit of the BNP uh, Paribus out of France, uh, planning on closing down all businesses in the Marshall Islands uh, soon. And this is really like 
the the only uh, like bank or access to a real financial institution on the island that doesn't involve physically going to the island where the uh, the capital is. And you know, as an example, like once this bank kind of pulls their services, um, like one of the only options uh, effectively to deal with a bank institution is, um, you know, it's it's pretty much going to the capital, <laughs> and it's it's like it's it's a really strange situation. Like one one of the things people will do is uh one one of the biggest employers on the island is a U.S. military base. Um, where there's access to banking services. And a lot of people will pretty much, you know, have money wired to other people's bank accounts on the, the island with the military base and effectively have them withdraw cash from their account and kind of pay a fee to them to deal with money. And like the, the only other option is really the Western Union, which again, from like th this is a, a large chain of islands and, and anybody interacting with western union literally has to go to the island with the capital so i mean anybody not living on that island it, it's a really big you know like a stressful thing to deal with like you actually have to go on a boat and deal with like oceanic travel moving to an entirely different island just to deal with withdrawing cash or, or receiving a wire internationally and, you know, this is kind of a big part of the reason, you know, as, as much as I think, you know, their their sovereign project is likely doomed to fail in, in terms of being able to actually build up liquidity, you know, be handled in a responsible way. Like th there is a need for something to kind of fill this gap. And I mean, like you have in, you know, another example, um, where's the picture did? Yeah, they, they businesses on the island effectively will just open lines of credit uh, and you know people will kind of settle these up after they receive their pay but i mean like the, this is exactly you know the kind of country where something like bitcoin is sorely needed and i really hate to say it but when you when you really kind of step back from the cryptocurrency ecosystem and really look at the financial landscape internationally like things are really tightening down. Like a, a lot of larger first world nations, a, a lot of organizations like the IMF, the World Bank are making these situations even worse because of the, the kind of underdeveloped nature of the economies in places like this and trying to move to create more and more restrictions and regulations that these countries have to comply with to actually interface with the world economy at large. And that's, you know, we, we can see here in the example of the First Hawaiian Bank, which is one of their only connections internationally to the, the world economy is, is pretty much going to be withdrawing entirely from the country due to the fact that they're having trouble complying with these kinds of regulations. And this is gonna have very drastic, very real consequences for people living there. I mean, like I said, like people are now going to have to deal with the reality of, you know, traveling between islands simply to deal with an ATM or be able to withdraw cash from something or to, you know, deal with any kind of money transmission internationally. And this is going to go far beyond like just everyday people 
dealing with their paychecks. Like this is going to start affecting businesses, being able to have outstanding lines of credit as they deal with, you know, the, the, the global economy at large and being able to settle these lines of credit as things are needed. And, uh, you know, a big part of the Marshall Islands economy is dealing with international things. I mean, like they are uh, outside of Panama, one of the, you know, they're, they're actually the, the second biggest uh, a place of a, I think it's a flag of convenience, or I'm, I'm probably using the wrong term, but a, a place where people will register ships outside of the actual country of ownership. And they're a huge international shipping port. Like, for instance, despite the fact that they have no oil refinery infrastructure whatsoever, they are one of the biggest importers, like technically speaking, of crude oil in the world because they, they will import these things, deal with exchange between different companies and fleets, and then ship it onward to somewhere else. And, you know, the, this is, this is going to have very drastic effects for this country's economy. And this is exactly the kind of place where something like Bitcoin could help alleviate this. Like, you know, as an island nation with, with access to something like the, the Blockstream satellite feed, they can have a guaranteed connection to the Bitcoin network where they can actually validate things. And considering how cash heavy the economy is, you know, it, it's, it's not the craziest thing in the world to expect people to be able to just settle in and out of Bitcoin in, in terms of cash and use something like Bitcoin as the, the, the gap fill to kind of bridge their interactions with other economies in the world. Like, you know, you can, you can kind of move in and out of these things with cash and then simply settle very quickly internationally using a system like Bitcoin. And I mean, you know, as a community, as entrepreneurs in this space who are looking for business opportunities, it's places like this that are really, in my opinion, going to offer like the, the most opportunity in terms of business models outside of just mining Bitcoin or running an exchange. Like these are places that are sorely underserved in terms of access to the international economy. And when you really, like I said earlier, step back and look at how things are really evolving internationally outside of the cryptocurrency ecosystem, the situation in places like this is going to get much worse. Like these institutions, these countries that are the economic giants of the world are getting more and more strict and more and more coercive in attempting to tighten the screws, so to say, and maintain their position of influence and monopolization over that access. And these people need alternatives. I mean, it's, it's not like as we've seen with, with the Petro, as I'm sure we'll see with the projects in Iran, and China's research as far as the, the People's Bank of China in doing their own kind of homebrew blockchain systems. I don't think these systems are going to be sustainable economically. And it, it's, it's not very likely that they're going to be able to work technologically. So like, people need to start trying to figure out how to build services to interact with places like this because they need it. And it is an opportunity to make money. Yeah, this is an article where, uh, you know, like it doesn't mention Bitcoin, but, you know, it mentions, you know, they're doing their cryptocurrency there at the end of the article. But the whole article, as you're reading it, you're just like, man, this has got Bitcoin written all over it. It's just uh, it's one of these situations, like you're saying, where Bitcoin can be very helpful for the, you know, 
for just their ability to uh, trade and, you know, sort of keep some of that value there at the island. I mean, you know, it's just uh, it kind of reminds me like a little bit of uh, Honduras. I spent some time in there on a military base and it sounds like a similar situation where most of the transactions are kind of uh, conducted around the military base and the uh, that country has its own little trade set up within the country. And I mean, like that. All we'd really need to do, like you're saying, is have the Blockstream satellite and some, you know, uh, some of those uh, radar relays and, you know, just getting the proper wallet development and all that. Because like you're saying, I mean, like, you know, the developments in this space are kind of like you have to pick and choose some of your battles. And like uh, if you're going to Honduras to do this, uh, set up a new currency, you're kind of battling already at the political end of the spectrum and the wrong side. You know, it's going to be tough. But uh, there, you know, it's a U.S. military base. And, um, you know, I, I think the only reason why this whole thing is like, uh, you know, it's even got kind of a little bit of a, I don't know, like you're saying, things don't look that great. And, uh, you know, there's been some studies from the U.S. military just recently where that base looks like a lot of the bases around there, I guess, are in question because of a uh, sea level rise. And uh, a lot of that island area, you know, um, probably will get flooded. I mean, I'm sure there'll be a, you know, a little piece of island left, but I mean, this is where, you know, the profit margin in banking is kind of like ruling out these people. It's like, there's no possibility for them, but uh, you know, yeah, like a system like Bitcoin, I think that could be a uh, very helpful. And um, yeah, I really think that uh, if you want to cut your teeth as a developer and you got some bright ideas, this might be the place to go and, um, you know, set up a little beach hut and try and get some, some work done out there on the in the field. Mm -hmm. I mean, <clears throat> you know, it's like people. I don't know, like, it, and this is a very predominant attitude in like the Bcash community. Like when you hear terms like you know, serve the underserved or bank the unbanked, it's like <clears throat> people have this very simplistic attitude where it's okay, well then they, okay, get them in a place <clears throat> where they can just do everything in Bitcoin. They can pay for everything in Bitcoin. They can get paid in Bitcoin and that's it. Like, that's the goal. And it's like, it's nowhere near that simple. Like, you know, you know, something like Bitcoin can provide an immense amount of value for a place like the Marshall Islands with the vast majority of the country never even touching it or, or transacting in it at all. And it can still function as that conduit to allow them to interact with the world economy at large. It, it, it's not as binary as they're either using Bitcoin for absolutely every economic transaction they conduct or we've failed. Like there, there is a whole spectrum of uses that, that systems like this can be put to. And like people need to stop thinking in terms of, you know, if, if everybody doesn't have a Bitcoin wallet in their pocket using it every day, then we haven't accomplished the goal. Like if it can be plugged into, you know, infrastructure, into economies in any way whatsoever that really provides value and improvement to people's lives, like that's a win. It's not just use Bitcoin to buy coffee every day or what's the point. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I don't know, is, uh, anybody else have any more uh, thoughts on the situation over there? 
Yeah, I guess add on to what you're saying, just like the the decoherence of uh, kind of trust in the network is what spurs us along in the first place, you know. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I guess I got that out of my system. Slide along to the next story I'm doing. Um, so I, I do want to start off by saying, um, you know, I, I like Eric Voskel and he is doing some amazing work with Libitcoin. It's a, a full mode implementation slash library um, as a, to be used as an alternative to Bitcoin Core itself. And if anybody hasn't watched it, I highly recommend you look at his presentation at the Satoshi's Vision Conference. It's literally the only presentation <laughs> that was not uh, solely watchable for the comedic value. But you know, it, it really is an amazing architecture in terms of the the efficiency and like the the scalability of it in terms of the the software itself. But that said, I do see him constantly. It seems like he's searching out for, you know, any opportunity to just call something a fallacy and dismiss it in terms of, you know, new ideas put forth in the space. And every time I see him do this, it's like he just he labels something a fallacy and then moves on and refuses to interact with any criticism or counter argument to his labeling of that. And, you know, he, he's, he's done this recently in, in response to Blue Matt's uh, better hash proposal as a replacement for the Stratum protocol to improve the, the decentralization and censorship resistant of the mining ecosystem. And <clears throat> pretty much his argument is that it provides no value whatsoever because a mining pool can simply withhold payment unless miners will you know, do something like identify themselves and register under an identity or agree to censor specific transactions. And I think this is just blatantly absurd. I mean, like upon like seeing this post, like my immediate thought was this is trivially solvable. You just have the miners hash lock the Coinbase output. I mean, it's, it's almost exactly like the, uh, P2 pool proposal that Belker is working on in integrating, um, you know, payment uh, channel hubs to kind of deal with the the dust problem as far as the Coinbase using P2 pool, except you don't have to get into any of the mess with the the share chain or the extra kind of node costs that are involved with running P2 pool. And pretty much, you know, my counter to this is it, it's very simple. Like the hasher who is actually you know, grinding the, the block header can simply apply a hash lock to the Coinbase that's being paid out to the pool. And then at that point, you know, if he finds a block, the mining pool cannot claim that. Like it's hash locked, only the actual miner with the mining equipment who found that block has the pre-image to unlock that Coinbase. And it, from the, the pool's perspective, the Coinbase is effectively held hostage. And from this point, that miner can pretty much refuse to provide that pre-image unless he, he actually receives a payout from that mining pool. And, you know, I'm assuming, you know, some of you out there are wondering, well, what happens if that miner pretty much, you know, only gets his payout and then doesn't care about whether the rest of the miners mining at that pool get paid out? 
And I, I kind of want to remind everybody, like the whole point of a mining pool is to smooth out the variance so that everybody gets paid more regularly. And in the instance where you have a miner who, who is doing something like this and hash locking the Coinbase, um, you know, if he were to receive his payout and then unlock that Coinbase before everybody else is paid out and therefore allow the mining pool to rip off all the other miners, then they're going to leave. And when, when you really step back and think about this, if, if a miner who finds a block does this and allows other miners in the pool to effectively be cheated by that pool and they leave, that miner is himself being hurt because the less hash rate on the pool that he's mining with, the more irregular his payouts are going to be and the more subject to variance he is going to be. So at the end of the day, him allowing even other miners to be cheated by the pool is going to hit his wallet. And so there's every incentive for a miner who actually finds a block in this scheme to not only hold that Coinbase hostage effectively until he receives his payout, but also until all the other miners receive their payout. And given the nature of how mining pools work, where you effectively submit shares at lower difficulty than the network difficulty to prove your work to the pool, he is able, or it is possible for him to receive not only, you know, the, the payouts to the supposed other miners in this pool, but also receive the shares that they have submitted to the pool um, in order to prove that they're actually mining in that pool. So an individual miner who's find a or found a block would very much be able to actually audit all the payouts for the other miners with nothing but the, the shares they've submitted to the pool to guarantee that not only are all the other miners getting paid, but all the other miners are getting paid correctly. And this would be in his best economic interest to keep all of the other miners at this pool around so that his payouts proceed to be done in a smooth manner and deal with that, that problem of variance. And so, you know, it's like, like I said, I, I really appreciate all the work that Eric is doing with Libitcoin, but I, I feel like this is something that he does. He does this pretty regularly where he just seems to kind of label something as a fallacy and then just move on and ignore the idea instead of looking at it like an engineer and, and look for the solution instead of just immediately kind of throwing his hands up and going, this doesn't matter. This is broken. Throw it out. And, you know, like, like I said, I, like, I'm not a developer and I, I try to be clear about this as regularly as I can. I have no real professional experience in, in any kind of technical sense. But I've, I've just proposed what I think is a very trivial solution to deal with this problem that he's pointed out. And it really disappoints me to see somebody like that in this ecosystem just kind of give up on an idea like this. Like he's identified a problem and so he's effectively just thrown his hands in the air and called it a fallacy and then just moved on without giving any real thought to solving the problem that he's identified. And you know, I kind of just wanted to throw this out there because, you know, the, this this proposal by Matt, I think, has a, a lot of value in terms of actually working to keep Bitcoin censorship resistant and our mining network decentralized. And it, it, it really just bothered me the way Eric kind of said this doesn't matter and threw this out there and just moved on. And, and he actually refused to engage with me proposing the solution that I've just gone on.
Yeah, that's uh, interesting. I don't know, um, you know, that much about Eric other than, yeah, Libitcoin. It's, uh, you know, a project that's uh, got a lot of, uh, you know, good merit. And uh, this this right here, I mean, like we were talking about a while back with uh, Matt's, uh, you know, improvement to the Stratum protocol. I mean, like, yeah, that's, uh, that's something that sounds good and necessary and uh, helpful. So um, I don't know. I guess this is just one of those, like, uh, I don't know, some developers, they just like uh, kind of one track mind and they see something, you know, they don't see it as a problem and they just kind of uh, write it off or something. Because, uh, yeah, I think that that proposal you uh, laid out sounds like an interesting way to handle that. Where's Blake when you need him, man? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you got anything to, to say, Nopar? Yes, I just I just wanted to say that uh, there are a lot a lot of Bitcoin developer who who are just identifying problems and not trying to solve it. So it's 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 I I think it's pretty unfair to 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 talk about Eric that he 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 is always doing that because. He has a lot of shit going on, and he is solving a lot of problems. You know, it's like I said, like I, I do want to like be clear to give him credit for the things he actually is doing. But I mean, like as far as criticism in this space, Nopara, like I try to be as objective as possible, and like this really is something that I've seen him do like multiple times with a few different things, like technically, economically, and. You know, it's, I mean, it's, if I look like a dick, I'm sorry, but like my, my policy and attitude towards criticism is if I see something to criticize people over, I'm going to do it. I don't care who they are or what they've done. And I mean, I think <laughs> I, all I need to do is point at Luke with his advocacy for a proof of work change. Like, I don't care who you are or what you've done previously in this space. Like if I see a problem with something being done, or a, a, a manner of engaging with ideas, I'm going to point it out. Fair enough. All right, so I guess uh, that concludes Shinobi Monkey's segment. Um, Want to dive through uh, this uh, Secret Service stuff, Janine, and please help me <laughs> navigate the screen shares. Uh, kind of a lot to deal with. <laughs> Um, well, the, probably the first five minutes or so are just going to be the, the Secret Service testimony document. So start off with that. Uh, mm -hmm. So basically on June 20th this year, uh, so was a week ago, uh, Secret Service's Deputy Assistant Director, uh, I can't see his name for a second. I'm not looking at the screen. Robert no Navi? No, Novi. I don't know. Novi. I'm assuming Novi um, testified before the United States House of Representatives Committee on Financial Services, specifically the Subcommittee on Terrorism and Illicit Finance. You probably know where this is going already um, about the, quote, increasing uh, illicit activities involving digital currencies, particularly criminal schemes that undermine the integrity of financial and payment systems. I wonder how broad that category is. Uh, their use in cases of fraud, and their general use as a means of money laundering. 
So he makes the argument that, quote, some digital currencies are primarily used to purchase illicit goods and services, ergo drugs, credit card information, personally identifiable information, and other contraband or criminal services, such as, you know, M&Ms and stuff at Lightning Network events. Very dangerous. Um, could be tainted. <laughs> Other digital currencies are, uh, this is still quoting, uh, other digital currencies are primarily used for money laundering, particularly transnational transfers. Uh, the greatest risks are posed by digital currencies that have widespread use for both of those purposes. So now I want to uh, point out that nowhere, uh, if you read through the whole document, nowhere in his testimony does he either directly name what cryptocurrency or cryptocurrencies, because he says digital currencies, so that means more than one, but he never actually names one that he is specifically accusing of this activity, nor does he offer any statistics whatsoever to support his claim that the primary, that is a keyword, primary purpose of any digital currency is the purchase of illicit goods or services that he lists or for money laundering. And I just want to remind everyone that, um, at least on this show, I've cited a study a number of times that was conducted by uh, some portion of the UK government um, where they found that less than 1% of Bitcoin's transactions, at least, were found to be illicit in nature, which I should note is just very distinct from illegal. Uh, not everything that is illicit is illegal. And this deputy assistant director provides citations in other areas of his testimony regarding other things, specifically where he's speaking about centralized exchanges that they were involved in taking down. But in none of these sections where he is talking about a broad, you know, primary use case for criminality with digital currencies, does he have any citations whatsoever? Uh, and a noteworthy statistic is that he claims that the Secret Service has seized over $28 million in cryptocurrencies in the course of their criminal investigations. He says that 12 were primarily in the form of Bitcoin. I assume he means $12 million. So that's not quite half, but almost half. Um, and he also says that the Secret Service and probably their partner agencies in the U.S. and abroad uh, may consider 51% attacks to be a violation of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, uh, which if anyone doesn't know, it's like this general purpose, you did something bad with a computer kind of law. And um, so basically, I guess that means that in the event of such activities in the future, we can assume that the Secret Service will decide to involve themselves from now on. Um, that one kind of surprised me. I would not expect them to be, uh, you know, jumping in on 51% attacks or trying to stop them or prosecuting people. Um, he also says that we should consider additional legislative or regulatory actions to address potential challenges related to anonymity, enhanced cryptocurrencies and services intended to obscure transactions on blockchains. And in this specific report, there is no explicit mention of Monero, but an article from Coindesk that was, um, that was analyzing this or quoting from this, uh, they also pointed out that previously the cyber division of the FBI, which the SS is no doubt working with in this area, and I actually think I will start, start calling Secret Service SS from now on, uh, specifically cited Monero as an example of a privacy-enhanced cryptocurrency that they are concerned about. And concern is basically a keyword for, we want to go after some uh, people, please give us some money. So... The reason I wanted to go into this specifically, and also I have a number of other links, is because 
Zcash is being left out, you know? They're not they're not being mentioned in a lot of these things about, you know, them being concerned about anonymity cryptocurrencies. So I'm kind of wondering why. Might it have something to do with the fact that they are, I don't know, in the blockchain alliance? <laughs> They're one of Zcash Co is one of those companies. Possibly. Yep, there they are. Yeah, so I think I've pointed this out already on Block Digest before, but just to clarify, if you scroll back up to the description of the purpose of this, apparently it's a working group, according to Peter from Blockchain. The purpose of this group is to provide a forum for open dialogue between industry and law enforcement and regulatory agencies in order to help combat criminal activity on the blockchain. We are a broad coalition of companies who have come together with a common goal to make the blockchain ecosystem more secure and to promote further development of this transformative technology. And I assume by make it more secure, they mean make it more secure for us so that we can do our job still and not have to worry about, you know, all the stuff you guys are doing. Um, so yeah, uh, the reason I want to also bring in Zcash is because another related thing, uh, some people found an old article today uh, citing some people who were involved in the project ZeroCoin, which if any of you know the history of Zcash was actually one of the precursors to Zcash called ZeroCoin. And in that article, um, they have Matthew Green saying that he is, you know, has no intention of creating a cryptocurrency that people can use for money laundering and that uh, they will provide a backdoor. Now, this does not surprise me. I've seen this article before. I think it's from 2013. Uh, but people were looking at it today because uh, tangentially, we saw that apparently Zuko is making $300,000 a month uh, personally just from the founder's reward from Zcash. And so these two discussions were kind of getting mixed together. Everyone was just getting mad at Zuko today and yesterday. Um, but yeah, I just find it weird that just Zcash doesn't get that much attention from law enforcement when they're making these reports about how concerned they are. Because Zuko, I think, has shown some concern and he has said that he wants to make Zcash too private, or not private enough for criminals, but private enough and fungible enough for everyone else, because that is possible somehow. Would love to know how he's going to solve that issue. Uh, but yeah, that's pretty much all I have to say on the subject. I just thought it was interesting that once again, Monero is a focus, or at least when there is no focus on any <laughs> cryptocurrency, uh, Monero tends to be the one that they fall on. Zcash never gets mentioned. I have I have so many things to say about this. First of all, how do you build how do you build a currency that is only that is completely private for non-criminals and and not private for for criminals? That's that's called confidentiality, and that's what we have right now in the banking system. We don't know what our neighbor does with our with their money, with their bank accounts, but governments know. At least they kind of can ask for it for those data. So so we already have that. That's that was an interesting quote. Oh, any comment on this? 
Uh, well, I just want to point out that in the thread where Zuko made that comment that he wanted them to be too not private enough for criminals, but private enough for everybody else, he clarified that he apparently expects um, Zeke, he expects centralized KYC exchanges to be gatekeepers for Zcash in the future so that you can, I guess, only get Zcash through an exchange and the exchanges will have to deal with like figuring out whether you're a criminal and you deserve to use money or not deserve to use money. Uh, so that was basically his answer to that question. He was saying the the exchanges, the KYC decentralized exchanges will handle it, which is not exactly the best uh, rebuttal. I would say that actually makes him sound worse. I agree. Uh, the other thing I, I want to point out that the that Matthew Green wants to build a backdoor that that quote is just I, I I must I must call this credibility the credibility of this quote is this you know this is something that no sane researcher no sane person who who wants to build anything would ever say uh, I I don't know how that how that thing happens there but I think it's a misquote it's it's it cannot be it cannot be that he wants to be at the back door that just i can't imagine this is this is crazy well i don't as i don't know the integrity of the quote i haven't seen him disclaim it or anything or anyone offer like an alternative explanation but i will say it's from 2013 so it's possible that he changed his mind it's an older quote uh, but that was the reason that whole discussion came up today with also regards to Zuko getting a lot of money from the Founders Award. People are also pointing out like, hey, they said this stuff about backdoors. Should be, we be worried that, you know, Zcash is going to add a backdoor or at least not put as much priority on maintaining the privacy of their cryptocurrency as people expect? Yeah, I mean, like, technologically, how could you even do that? I mean, like, to, to try and wrap my head around that, like, with something like confidential... Trusted, with a trusted setup. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean, like, yeah. look look at, like, CT or something. Like, they have a specific key to blind things so that you can selectively reveal it. So, like, what are you going to do? Like, if, if like, is there going to be some kind of trusted authority that would have that key? Well, then in that case... How are you going to ever be able to unblind it? Like, because if you both have a key, like, and everybody's using this authority's key, like, you would either, like, need to have everybody use the same key, in which case everybody can see everything, or have some kind of, like, registration system where, like, you get a key from this authority figure and everybody has their own. And then, like, you, like, you know, it's like, how, how would you even construct that cryptographically where an authority could break privacy, but nobody else could? I mean, like. <laughs> and by the way, this argument is not new at all. It's what's known as the golden key argument. And it's been this argument that has been used ever since cryptography, uh, you know, got uh, more widespread public use by normal people outside of just academics and there's it's the reason it's called the golden key argument is because it's this idea that we should give this golden decryption key to law enforcement that somehow our cryptography and our encryption software is perfectly safe 
um no one no like there's no security vulnerability but then this golden key can decrypt any message for law enforcement purposes and unsurprisingly enough no one has found a solution to that and so that's why you know someone like zuko who i don't i'm not entirely confident in his expertise i've gotten increasingly less confident over the years but surely i know that he has been around long enough to know that that argument is bad and stupid so there are really only three possibilities for me why he would say something like that one is that for some reason he genuinely just doesn't know that that's not going to work uh at least without centralized exchanges in which case or kyc exchanges in which case not interested bye um <laughs> i didn't even do that for bitcoin not going to do it for fake private zcash um the other explanation is that he because he's in this blockchain alliance he has this like sense that he has to pander to law enforcement and say these things to make them feel hopeful that maybe this will happen in the future even though he knows it's bogus also a possibility Third possibility, uh, what even was the third possibility, is that he actually believes this and it's a signal or something that he they actually intend to add some kind of backdoor to Zcash. I don't know. It's one of those three. I can't think of another explanation. It also, I, I think it just depends on the audience. You know, maybe, maybe Zuko is someone who is is talking to the audience and and not 100% consistent to his verb what he says to cypherpunks it's different to what he says to to government people and law enforcement things like that yeah it's uh the whole privacy thing it seems pretty uh you know cut and dry that it's either there or not or uh you know you build a system kind of like uh bitcoin where you can you know build a you know, tumblers and mixers and try and get the confidentiality that way. But yeah, the whole founder's reward uh, or the whole uh, ceremony, the first go round, I mean, had issues with it where uh, the possibility of a backdoor was there. And uh, I think Peter Todd brought that up last year. And I know that it just seems like Zcash is doing like kind of like a it's in a weird position because like you're saying, they're part of the blockchain alliance, but they're also trying to be an anonymity currency where, you know, it's anonymous on that base layer, which, yeah, it's either all or nothing for me on that. And um, yeah, it seems like a lot of the work being done over there has more to do with just like uh, talking to the right people as far as regulators go in uh, New York. They just recently were granted the license for uh, to be listed there on Gemini and, um, you know, it's uh, it seems like they're definitely working closely, like you, you know, with these people that are trying to uh, run some of these investigations, and so yeah, I, I don't know. To me, it's like, uh, you know, the possibility of them trying to get some sort of uh, supposed, you know, anonymous currency, you know, with a backdoor there. I don't know. I think that's something that, yeah, maybe it's just like a, it's something where the law enforcement really wants it. And so there's a lot of funding there for it. If somebody could put together the proper language to make it seem like a possibility, could be a lot of money in it. And I guess, uh, you know, even without that, you see the founder's reward, Zuku's doing all right. So uh, Zoku, yeah. So um, I don't know, the Zcash thing's kind of, a, kind of a mystery to me. It seems like there's a lot going on over there with, uh, you know, the possibility of uh, proof of work change and like uh, 
you know, what's going on there. And it's a, it's a weird thing, but um, yeah, I don't know. A while ago, I've done my homework on the Blockchain Alliance and what I found, there was a forum where they said all Zcash's involvement with the Blockchain Alliance is that Zuko gave a presentation to law enforcement and that made Zcash somehow qualified to be put on the website of Blockchain Alliance. So this is the story what you can find out if you are looking into why why the heck is Zcash in the Blockchain Alliance. I thought they were also doing something for uh, JP Morgan. I, I don't know, that might have been Ripple actually, sorry. And the other thing is when I was doing this uh, research on the Blockchain Alliance, I um, because because it's it's something crazy if you go to their website and and the biggest Bitcoin companies uh, with the sole goal of de-anonymizing the Bitcoin users that's the that's the Blockchain Alliance. So what I found is that uh, Christoph Atlas uh, said that the Blockchain Alliance does not do anything today. It's uh, it just. It's just, you know, some people came together, some CEOs put up a website and now they look, look, they, they, they present a positive image towards law enforcement. And uh, I, I tend to believe this because we don't hear basically any news about the Blockchain Alliance. So they seem to do nothing, but I'm not 100% sure that's the case. Probably they don't do anything just yet. A real possibility. When uh, when Zuko gave his presentation to law enforcement, did he tell them the secret of how ZK snarks work, finally? <laughs> Got it. Because, you know, if I was making $300,000 a month, I would like, you know, and I was the CEO of this kind of company, I would hire a cryptographer or a mathematician to explain to me how this stuff works so that I could explain it when I get paid, you know, to give talks and stuff and go to meetups for developers. I would, I would do that with that money. Oh, it's okay. You don't need to know exactly how it works, right? It's, it's something about billiard balls or something, different colored balls. I can give analogies. That probably costs a thousand dollars an hour, right? <laughs> Jeez. Well, I mean, uh, you know, who needs to understand the basic building blocks you're using to build something? I mean, you just plug them in like Legos, right? I mean, that that's how engineering works. That's how I designed Design Zero Link with uh, <laughs> blind signatures. I, I I totally thought we are we are going. I'm going to blind. Blind something else, but that's how I designed. But it turned out to be working that way, working some similar way, and everything is working as I as I hoped it will. It just I I had a fundamental flaw. Anyway, that's yeah. You you just assume something works some way, and 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 you hope it's going to kind of work that way <laughs> yeah but you know blinded signatures have i don't know decades of uh field testing to prove they function uh 
ZK Snarks and Starks are <laughs> <makes> pretty new. <laughs> <laughs> They're pretty new construction. Yeah, you know, it was introduced in 1992. I think I was reading that paper. <laughs> Still, <laughs> okay. Mm -hmm. As, uh, I don't know. Any any, uh, any last thoughts on this one? Uh, I know Janine's got something she uh, wants to get in before we move on. All right, Janine, you're up. All right, so, you know, because the whole point of these foundations that are formed around these cryptocurrencies, the point, the reason for existence for a lot of them is touted as we want to be more equitable and fair with the distribution of funds uh, that are to make sure that developers are paid for the work that they do. And so this, you know, you may think at the moment, this is the GitHub contributor uh, list for Bitcoin because Vladimir is at the top of the list. Oh no, this is the repo for Zcash. <laughs> so I propose that instead of giving 9% of the founders reward to Zuko, which is currently happening, whereas the rest of his employees have to break up a 3.4% share, I propose giving the 9% share to Vladimir instead, because he is the number one contributor to Zcash. Or at least break it up among these guys. <laughs> because if anyone, in case anyone is not aware, Zcash was a fork of Bitcoin and you can tell it was a fork of Bitcoin because they even forked the repo on GitHub and it has the same contributors as Bitcoin. So oh, I, that, is, that is my proposal, what, it, zip, it is my zip. <laughs> You know what, I have, did they ever fix the UTXO set denial of service attack that uh, Chris JJ uh, pretty much like dropped uh, publicly at breaking Bitcoin when he wasn't supposed to? Because they, they forked off of a pretty old Bitcoin repo. I think it was like uh, 0.11.2 uh, or something, I think. <laughs> I want to know if they fix that, because if not, all all the Zcash nodes out there are uh, <laughs> crashable through a denial of service attack. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, I think that was where it was like whenever that happened at Breaking Bitcoin. That's what one of the major things people were getting upset about was like, what implementations still have that problem, and uh, you know, like what kind of fixings need to be done now. Huh. Well, uh, in the chat is telling me Zcash isn't UTXO based, but frankly, with his history, I'm not sure if he's trolling me or not. So, uh, huh. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay. He's saying just for shielded transactions potentially, but given that almost nobody uses them, if they haven't patched that, then yes, you can, you can crash nodes with that. <laughs> I need to. I think I need to look in and uh, see if they dealt with that or not. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I guess uh, if there's no more thoughts on this one, uh, slide along to Rick's story. Yeah, um, we were talking about in the previous story before the whole Zcash thing about uh, the Secret Service getting involved in this stuff uh, going on with financial crimes and everything. I think we're going to see a lot more of that. Um, so yeah, Kyle Torpy, I saw this tweet from him the other day talking about this uh, 
first nationwide investigation into the darknet markets over the course of the past year has concluded with uh, 35 individuals being arrested. But uh, let's get into what exactly this was. The Department of Justice worked with the U.S. Immigrations and Customs Enforcement's Homeland Security Investigations and the U.S. Secret Service and uh, the U.S. Postal Inspection Service and the U.S. Drug Enforcement Agency. So it was a good bit of uh, coordination there between uh, different agencies to ensure that they could, uh, you know, get the guys that they wanted to go for on this. But um, the New York Homeland Security Investigations Office ran this uh, operation and was able to uh, yeah, open 90 active cases around the country, which uh, led to the arrest of these 35 darknet vendors. And uh, agents set up as money launderers and uh, were able to seize, you know, uh, three point, let's see, uh, cryptocurrency mining devices, weapons, narcotics, 3.6 million in uh, currents, U.S. currency and gold bars, and nearly 2,000 Bitcoins. You know, that's uh, worth over 20 million. So it looks like uh, a lot of the, uh, you know, money was still in crypto. And the uh, deputy attorney running this, uh, you know, basically uh, guiding this uh, Rod Rosenstein, said that uh, about this operation, criminals who think they are safe on the dark net are wrong. We can expose their networks. We are determined to bring them to justice. Today, we arrested more than 35 alleged dark net vendors. We seized their weapons, their drugs, and 23.6 million of their ill-gotten gains. And uh, Rosenstein also explained that their goal in this is to uh, try and cut off the uh, fentanyl supply on dark net markets. You know, uh, pretty good political reason to sell this investigation is, uh, you know, he said, uh, this nationwide enforcement effort will reduce the supply of deadly drugs like fentanyl that are killing unprecedented number of Americans, which, um, you know, that's a true statement, but, um, you know, they went after a lot more than just fentanyl. They ended up, uh, gathering a whole bunch of, uh, you know, narcotics and, uh, some that are legal in some States, but, I guess just the way the transactions were taking place, they uh, they still went after these guys. And uh, let's see, the executive associate director, Derek Binner of the New York Office of Homeland Security Investigations, which, uh, yeah, the, he said that uh, the dark net is ever changing and increasingly more intricate, making locating and targeting those selling illicit items on this platform more complicated. The veil has been lifted and today's bus show that every criminal is within arm's reach of the law. And, uh, you know, in this, uh, in the separate cases down there in this, uh, they list off, uh, several names and their charges. There was a mention of the, uh, dark net markets that some of these operations took place on, uh, Silk Road Two, Hansa, Alpha Bay, Trade Route, Wall Street Market and Dream Marketplace were mentioned. And also in a uh, in another one of those cases, some of the currencies mentioned were Bitcoin, Ethereum and Komodo. So um, that's all like uh, the information we get out of that as far as like which currencies and which markets were being uh, investigated. But uh, says that, uh, you know, the cases were, you know, across uh, about 20 or so different states, but uh, multiple cases in California and New York and uh, just some. Uh, interesting little tidbit about like they got yeah like they got a grenade launcher on the dark net market and about 15 different pill presses and it's just uh it's definitely something 
Yeah, go ahead. Uh, for for Bitcoin, what's what's interesting is is there anything that's not related to selling physical items over the mail? Because that's what we could we could look at. Yeah, I mean, like uh, I didn't really uh, get into that. Other than if you do look at the cases, it does all of them mention you know the sell virtual currencies for drugs, narcotics, or for weapons. And uh, so it does look like, and even some of them, I imagine, uh, like some of the cases talk about how they uh, purchased vehicles for the agents in order for the uh, return of the narcotics. And so it's like, uh, there's some um, definitely like a mixture of all the money laundering, the selling of illicit, illicit uh, you know, illegal items and, and then, uh, you know, working with uh, variants, uh, very crypto. So, I mean, like, I guess it's just like, uh, People, they went after the people that are doing a little bit of all of it, you know, not somebody that's, uh, I guess, just selling Bitcoin or something like that. You know, I, I don't really cruise the darknet markets that much. I don't even know what's I, being sold there other than I would imagine just illicit illegal stuff. But I, I've heard that they sell regular stuff there through the darknet markets. So I don't know. I, I have seen the statistics around one year ago that... Uh, 80 to 90 percent is drugs so so that's that's the main thing they are selling what i am interested in that is 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 the bitcoin's lack of uh, anonymity had anything to contribute to these cases or or they just they just got these guys their computers are open and store their bitcoins or 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 they did they do actually any blockchain analysis that get them to get closer to the case because if there are weird there are things those they did not if there are cases where they did not touch the physical world like uh, i don't know like some card card information seller or something like that now that that's then we can assume that you know i'm working on bitcoin privacy and i have just no idea how close law enforcement how close what's the state of blockchain on this it's just it's just impossible it's just so closed community or i don't even know what they have yeah so there are no information what what they can and cannot do I think we'll get more of that information once some of these, uh, you know, when some of these cases go to court and we start hearing about their investigation for right now, it's just like a, a general overview of all that. But I would have to imagine just because of the amount of uh, services integrated into this investigation, which included the post office inspector, I would imagine it's like not just Finson, you know, there's probably a little bit of that going on. But I think for the most part, it's like a correlation of like, okay, these Bitcoin came from this Bitcoin address. And then this package went out from this address. And then, you know, you spoke with this person that made the trend. So it's like a correlation of the information coming together. But um, I mean, it, you know, from that perspective that you're taking, I would imagine you just like say that they've, they're uh, about as beefed up as they you could get, like just that adversarial thought of like, you know, they know everything. And so I'm going to try and figure out a way around that. But uh, I mean, yeah, that's where, I don't know. We know that, uh, what's that uh, company that I'm losing thought of right now that made crystal for the miners? Uh, Bit, that, Bit, uh, Bitfury. 
Bitfury. Yeah, like, you know, Bitfury's doing Crystal and uh, we've got other companies out there doing uh, FinCEN. And, you know, we don't really hear that much uh, from them as far as their developments until, I guess, an actual arrest and a case gets tried. And then we hear about how they did it. So my educated guess is that there are uh, three, well, two blockchain resist companies. Uh, one is Elliptic from the UK. One is Chainalysis from the US. And well, you you are saying Krista, but I don't think that's that's making. I mean, I I think that's like nothing. You know what I mean? It's uh yeah, it's not really Chainalysis. It's just yeah, something it's, to do with mining it's more more of marketing yeah of, of bitfury so so i i wouldn't take that very seriously and and there is vsec which is a uh, which was created for for figuring out what happened to the madgox coins but they are not doing as far as i know they are not doing any work for law enforcement on on normal peoples or or for for any government agency, they are not spying. So they, they seem to be pretty ethical from, these sex seem to be pretty ethical from that point of view. Uh, Chainalysis, as far as I know, they cannot, they cannot, they don't even do anything with a joint market transactions. So if, it, if it's a coin join, that's that's the end of their, their, <laughs> their road. So Chainalysis might be using, uh, SPV uh, SP might might have a S SPV bloom filter crawler which which can get them closer to the anonymized SPV wallets uh, and there is elliptic which I don't know much about but I know that they are doing really good research they have a lot of phd they have a lot of very smart people and i i think they are they are doing some serious stuff there and there might be some blockchain or is this company they they don't really market themselves they they yeah they are under my radar so yeah but you know blockchain is permanent the yeah it's not going to get lost so there you go well, um, you know, there was like a uh, 70 indictments handed down to where 35 got arrested. I mean, like maybe that was like that's about half of those people. That's exactly half. So, I mean, like uh, maybe the other half were actually doing some uh, coin join and tumbling services or, you know, there was just like a little bit of they were using a different address or a P.O. box or something to where they couldn't tie the information together to uh, to actually get the conviction on those guys. So. It'll be interesting to see when some of these go to court, what we'll to see what they're actually saying as far as how their investigation came together to uh, actually get a conviction on these 35 individuals. Well, yeah, you say that, but they are already going to court and there are already information on this blockchain on this got this guy down, but I, I just, I can't really, I can't make sense of it. Well, we won't many see conflicting it. information, you know? We won't see it on uh, until it's on public record. Actually, like uh, they released information at the actual trial. That's whenever we get to see what they were doing. 
Yeah, yes, that's what I'm talking about. There are already a lot of cases like that. Uh, you go to deep.web.com and 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 there is a uh, I don't know every day like five uh, this get busted, this got busted, and uh, and there are a lot of uh, very good, very researched information about uh, darknet criminals got busted, but it's hard to make sense of it's what people say is is hard to make sense what the code says it's easier to make sense all right yeah like uh just um thinking about like these guys i mean uh i don't know those those cases you know they might have just been people that are really careless and they were able to get caught really easily it'd be interesting to hear these because it's such an integral, you know, coalition of people trying to get these guys and, you know, here, like, uh, yeah. What exactly is, uh, the real adversaries process? Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's a drink. Everybody you got a drink. I wouldn't mm -hmm. there. You got it. You got a drink I twice. Know. I think. I <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, uh, any last thoughts on uh, this one before we move on? I think we're good. All right. Time to get some laughs in, some cheap laughs, everybody. So uh, I, I tweeted about this the other day, but I, I had to bring this up <laughs> and talk about this on the show. Okay. So um, the CEO of Ripple, uh, Brad Garlinghouse, uh, at a, uh, a public event, um, I think it was uh, the uh, Future of FinTech conference in New York, um, pretty much uh, was, in my words, publicly begging Coinbase to list XRP. <laughs> uh, he, he made a few statements uh, uh what was it? Uh, as we solve problems at scale for institutions, I think it's in Coinbase's interest to participate in that, said Garlinghouse, adding that XRP is clearly not a security. I think, I think it's really clear that XRP is not a security. XRP exists independent of Ripple, and it would operate even if Ripple Labs... Hey, I, I want to point out very clearly here, Ripple... But then the next, like same sentence, Ripple Labs, with okay, now this is this is what they do. With this is a very clear tactic of confusion through fucking rhetoric in, in constantly interchanging all three of these words to just try and confuse the nature of the associations here. Ripple is the currency. In their, in their own documentation, they refer to the, the tokens as ripples. XRP is a ticker used on marketplaces. Ripple Labs is the company that holds the vast majority of Ripple. And it is pretty much ran by the people who created the company who just printed this money out of thin air and gifted it, air quote, to the company. <laughs> so I, I, I just want to point out, how manipulative this nonsense is where they clearly are intentionally just interchanging this constantly 
to blur the associations between all of these different things. Because th this is this is not just something, you know, that that you know it popped up out of nowhere and the company started building on it. These people created it, printed this money out of thin air, and then just incorporated and gave it air quote to this corporation, which has literally simply been selling it on the open market to finance the company. And this, this is actually where, <clears throat> if everybody remembers the FinCEN fine uh, from a few years back, this was actually explicitly because they were selling this directly to consumers. And since then, they've had to back off and make indirect sales to exchanges and, and other licensed individuals who then go on to sell it to the end consumer. But I mean, like <clears throat> this, this is just, it, it is unbelievably manipulative and disingenuous. And at this point, it's just frankly pathetic. As we've seen, you know, not too um, long back in the past, they literally attempted to bribe uh, Gemini and Coinbase to, to list Ripple previously. And now their CEO is effectively just making pathetic public pleas to Coinbase to list this token. Because it's a pump and dump. I mean, like literally, we we had like you just look at the chart, meteor or meteoric rise and drop right back to where it came from. It's the exact same pattern every shitcoin pump has followed ever in the history of the space. And we had Brian Kelly on CNBC to help teach people how to buy the top, and yet they they can they continue this manipulative confusion of <clears throat> language to try to blur the nature of association between the company Ripple Labs and the cryptocurrency Ripple. They continue to assert that this is not a security when they're doing things like deceptively claiming it's integral to the company's business, constantly pushing out misrepresentative news stories attempting to imply that financial institutions are directly using Ripple when they are utilizing products that in no way make use of Ripple. They're, they're simply <clears throat> not settlement systems for fiat currencies that in no way make use of the actual Ripple token and are literally just making pleas in public to please, please list us Coinbase because that is one of the biggest retailer con retail consumer platforms out there. And they have literally half of the supply to be able to just give to Coinbase to act as a broker. Because I, I want to remind people like Coinbase's core business, not, not GDAX or any of the, the institutional products they've recently been uh, rolling out, was a broker. <clears throat> they take their own coins and directly sell them to you. When you sell coins on Coinbase, they directly themselves buy them from you. So the, the supply that you're interacting with as a retail consumer on Coinbase is theirs. And they're, they're literally just begging in public for Coinbase to list them because they, they have that liquidity to give to Coinbase to just dump more of this supply since the FinCEN fine and ruling that they are not allowed to directly sell to retail consumers. And like, I mean, this is like, I, I cannot wait to watch this project just implode on itself. It is a shit show of manipulation, of lies, of intentionally trying to confuse people. And it's a house of cards that's going to implode on itself. And I, I think it's very telling that 
when Ethereum was declared not a security, even though I would personally argue it clearly is, that Ripple was not included in that exemption from a security classification by the SEC. Yeah, this was uh, yeah, pretty laughable because, yeah, like the Ethereum not a security sort of came down from uh, the SEC statement. And uh, it's pretty funny to see him, you know, just like, OK, well, we're not a security either. Please list us, uh, you know. And, yeah, there was all that talk, that background talk about Coinbase listing Ripple. And then uh, there was that big uh, pushback on uh, Coinbase listing uh, Bcash. And then it's just like you could see them kind of backpedal from that point on to where they were like, OK, I don't know if we should list Ripple, even though it was kind of listed in their API at one point. And uh, this was all kind of sort of like, yeah, right after Brian Kelly showed people how to buy the top and then it crashed back down. And so I don't know, I guess there's just like some uh, I don't know. I wouldn't be surprised if some of those guys like uh, sold at the top up there and then bought some back at the bottom and waiting for Coinbase to list to sell at a top again. And now they can't find their top and they're just crying about it. I don't know. It's uh, <laughs> it's definitely comical to hear them like uh, just playing because, you know, yeah, they listed that whole process that they have. And I don't know their their explanation for why they're not a security is also pretty laughable. I mean, like them saying oh, well, we maybe control a large portion of the supply, but we don't control it. And, you know, it's just, I don't know. It's Ripple, it's one of those that's laughable and a joke, but just the space is so ridiculous that, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if they did get the right hands grease and maybe Coinbase wants to just go down in a big ball of flames or something and they list it and then at a certain point they all just go down or something. I don't know. It's a... Uh, <laughs> I got you drinking like three times on this uh, statement, but um, yeah, it's it's uh, it's pretty comical. Ripple. I mean, it's just ridiculous. I mean, they keep pushing this entire like uh, we we aren't what we look like. Uh, we're, we're 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 not a blockchain, guys. We're not a blockchain. We're no 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 no. We're not a security. Absolutely not a security. No 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 no. What's next? What are they gonna do next? Like. We're not a cryptocurrency like Jesus Christ, guys, guys, what we actually are is a pool of funds dedicated to bribing regulators. I mean, shit, that's not what we are. I mean, shit, we're a blockchain. Fuck. I mean, we're security. Oh, shit. Fuck. We're in trouble, aren't we? Well, they got Snoop Dogg, so. I don't think that really speaks uh, to, to much that they, they were able to get somebody who is constantly paid to endorse and say things to uh, endorse and say things. Thanks, they're going to have their own strain from Snoop's farm. All right, though. Got, got the ripple punches in. You guys ready for the next one? Let's do it. All right. So... Andreessen Horowitz is launching a $300 million cryptocurrency fund. Um, I might add, after they were busted red-handed making backdoor deals and meetings with the SEC in regards to Ethereum's uh, security status, which I'm sure uh, had nothing to do with the ruling. May or may not be being completely sarcastic there. <laughs> but... Um, yeah. 
yeah. So it's it's kind of light on details, but uh, they're they're pretty much um, establishing this fund to invest in token projects. So by that, I'm going to assume that they mean utility tokens uh, built on platforms like Ethereum, which they have spent a lot of time and I'm assuming money guaranteeing is not going to be classified as a security, which would have a lot of implications as far as the accessibility of the platform for things like utility tokens, seeing as it is required to actually have Ethereum tokens to pay gas costs to operate on the network. Um, but the one interesting thing is um, they, they're pretty much um, committed to participating actively in the governance of companies that will benefit from the fund. So I think kind of what, what they're doing here for, from my perspective is pretty much doubling down on stupid. They're like you, we've seen a lot of utility tokens, air quote, launched over the past year during the ICO mania. And, you know, as we've kind of looked at the, the DAP activity on Ethereum, no, no one's really using anything. I mean, we, like we've, we've seen CryptoKitties go through its huge mania and actually receive multi-million dollar investments from Andreessen Horowitz. And we, we've seen some distributed exchanges on the Ethereum platform pretty much just be used to pump and dump shit tokens. But, you know, we, we, we haven't really seen a utility token that's actually taken off with widespread use. And in my opinion, it's because, you know, most of these are simply money grabs. Like, there, there, there isn't any real concrete development platform, and most of them aren't really attempting to solve an actual problem that exists. And, you know, they're, they're really doubling down on the stupid, assuming that simply by attaching strings to participate more actively in how these projects are run, that they can actually get something out of the door that's actually going to be used. I mean, I, I know we've talked about uh, this a lot, but utility tokens really, for the most part, are, are just completely useless. I mean, unless you are actively going to effectively try to use the token to distribute control over the project itself, such as like uh, BISC with, with its utility token, if effectively to use the token as a governance method for a distributed autonomous organization, there's there's really no point in it. I mean, if, if you really look at some of the lightning dApps coming out, like people are already looking at trying to plug in like lightning network into IPFS and try to create some kind of like Filecoin system using Bitcoin. And really at the end of the day, if you're trying to structure a utility token to actually facilitate the transfer of goods and services, as opposed to do something like be a means of coordination or control for a DAO, like it, it's not gonna it's not gonna happen like somebody somewhere will take a more general purpose cryptocurrency and figure out a way to build that application using a more widely adopted more liquid cryptocurrency and it's going to eat your utility token alive and you know i lo looking at the the actions of a lot of groups like andreessen horowitz i think it's going to take them a really long time to kind of acknowledge and accept that because like they're coming from the mentality of, of a, a VC firm. They throw money at stuff. Some of it fails. The things that don't create a, a huge return for them. And 
I, I think it's really hard for a lot of these people to look at the space in terms of anything but throw money at these coins and eventually they'll explode in price and will realize a massive return. When, you know, in, in the long run, that, that might happen in the short term, but it, they're going to die off because you, you can, like any kind of these applications, you can just take something like Bitcoin and build the application on top of that and have access to much more liquidity, a, a much larger network effect, and, you know, in the longer term, a much more stable price, you know, as that liquidity keeps building up, as that network effect continues to grow. And I think, like, they're really going to have to just burn through a shit ton of money to learn this lesson, I think, because it's, like, no matter, like, they, they literally just dumped millions of dollars into crypto kitties in the middle of its exploding growth to just watch it peter out and effectively like no one's using it anymore and they double down on stupid and are throwing 300 million dollars into this fund and i mean it's like you need to get burned to learn apparently Yeah, I guess the crypto kitty burn wasn't enough. That was a pretty hard one too. So, uh, yeah, I really, uh, I don't know. I guess uh, it's gonna take a little bit. Yeah, I mean, no, no input from anybody else on this. Do 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 do. All right, slide along into some more comedy. Oh, oh yeah i'm mad at myself for not having a meme ready um okay i'm gonna go through this and then and then you guys are gonna install while i i dig through my meme folders <laughs> but um yeah so the uh, metronome ico um jeff garzik's inter blockchain project are uh, you know recently uh had its run and um <laughs> this has definitively uh, proven that the entire auction model that they established for this ICO is, well, um, completely fucking retarded. <laughs> the, the entire uh, auction was pretty much structured to start off. Um, there, there was 10 million tokens created, 2 million of which was kept by Block Inc., and 8 million of which was put up by uh, or for auction for the ICO. And um, the entire structure was effectively to start at a price and then descend in price going towards the end of the auction. So the earlier you buy, the more you're paying. And, you know, I, I, I'm sure that being that most of our viewers are, okay, let me, let me correct that. Being that all of our viewers are more intelligent than Jeff Garzik, I'm sure it's pretty obvious how this played out. Almost nothing was sold until the very end where a handful of whales shot in and bought up the entire token supply. There was literally 2 million of the 8 million tokens up for auction purchased by a single person in a single transaction. So I just have to ask, Jeff, like, what the fuck was going on in your head? Like, how did you not realize how monumentally retarded this auction structure was? 
and how this would play out in terms of the token concentration. <laughs> I mean, like... <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Metronome was one of those projects where whenever I first heard about it, just the idea of it really uh, was kind of just like, what? They want to, you know, use this token to transfer between blockchains, and it just was really kind of out there in the air, like uh, as far as like what exactly is it going to do other than you know, de-anonymized users that try to get it and, you know, and transfer it around. And so I don't know that the idea that maybe he would have a pretty good, uh, you know, pre-sale together. Yeah, I guess it's a little too much for Jeff. I don't know. It's one of those things where all the way these, these pre-sales go and everything, it's, I don't know, these mechanics on the ICOs, I try to stay away from it, but I mean, yeah, it's not too surprising that he messed it up and, now three individuals control over half the supply. That's pretty crazy. I, I think it was a simpler issue. Uh, you know, Jeff Jeff had one little problem. Jeff had, like, dude, ICOs aren't popular anymore. Like, that, they're just not popular anymore. And he made this terrible mistake of waiting entirely too long to scam people. And it's just, dude, like, you missed your chance. Like, you, you had the satellite scam. You could have pitched that. Oh, yeah. It's like, it's, it's, it's almost as retarded as the Zcash launch. <laughs> where, where we're just going to start off and we're going to trickle out the supply and have it slowly build up because that's totally not going to create a liquidity shortage, spike the price to the moon and then crash it like a rock. I mean, that's totally not what's going to happen. Like it, it's, it boggles my mind how so many people in this space with, with so many like official accreditations like are just so completely retarded when it comes to common sense. Like, <laughs> like, a, 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 like a child could have explained how this would have played out. An eight-year-old child, if you just sat down and asked them, wouldn't you want to pay less money for something if you could? And then explained how this ICO is structured. I mean, it's, it's amazing. It, it is an amazing display of complete stupidity. Yeah, I guess he's just trying to rack up all those dollars that he can before, you know, he's got to go to court or, you know, the SEC says metronome's not a security or something. Maybe he's just too busy and had to make snap decisions like launch this ICO, design this ICO in one hour next <laughs> and and something like that. So he, he doesn't doesn't really think through the consequences of what what his decisions are. Dude, like I would like like what does Block do? Like what does that company do? They build themselves as an enter or enterprise blockchain solution platform. What do they do? Like he, he, originally, he was pretty much saying they were going to try and apply a Red Hat model to Bitcoin development. Where's their Bitcoin client? Where where is where is their fork of, of Bitcoin with with feature sets specifically for enterprise like you know companies? What 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 are they doing with Ethereum? Where where is their Ethereum products? What where is their their smart contracting solution. Like what what all I've seen them do 
is is shitcoin airdrops and ICO advisors. Like what what the fuck does that company do? They're a siphon. I think they siphon things from other areas and other budgets and just suck it up. Not advising advisor company. Right, yes. What are they advising besides ICOs? Like <laughs> Yeah, it's it. Oh, uh, ICO endorsements, the stamp on the, uh, that's probably, that's, you could sell that, right? Maybe. Yeah, it cost you for old Garzik's photo on your ICO team, development team. <laughs> it's like, you know, people point at Blockstream and ask, how are they going to make money when they're like building out liquid with a clear monetization like plan? Like, look at Block. Like, what, what the fuck are they doing? Like, I have seen zero, like, monetization of anything except United Bitcoin, which last I checked, um, oh, yeah. literally was a dead network not being mined. And the only explorer, I think, said the outstanding supply was zero, where they literally confiscated unclaimed coins after a ridiculous structure where they just dropped the fucking thing out there low key, like didn't really advertise it. And then went, Oh, whoopsies. If you didn't get it now, we're just going to confiscate the coins and then, and then we'll own them and probably dump them shadily on a market somewhere to make money. <laughs> and then we see this metronome ICO and it, it, it's been an even bigger clusterfuck than that. I mean, like I cannot wait to see somebody like the SEC start sniffing around and, and looking at Block, especially with Matt. Um, I, I forget his last name right now. He's actually been, um, you know, penalized by the SEC before for fraudulent market activity. I mean, it's like, <laughs> how does this shit slip by? I don't know. I'm like looking for that picture of Jeff Garzik sitting next to that satellite, just looking like trying to be smart. Cause yeah, it's like, uh, I don't know. Jeff Garzik. All right. Well, slide along for just a quick update. Uh, pretty much, uh, Australia and New Zealand have, uh, both definitively, uh, had statements made by the heads of their respective central banks that for the meantime, they have no plans of instituting a central bank cryptocurrency and have kind of pointed to the, uh, implications for, uh, the banking sector's financial stability, which, you know, we've kind of gone over uh, a few times whenever these kinds of stories come up. You know, if, if you had a central bank effectively issue its own peer-to-peer -peer cryptocurrencies people could directly interact with, that just throws a huge wrench in the entire way that uh, deposits and loans work in terms of commercial banks and how that would affect their uh, deposit to liability ratios, which would pretty much just throw the entire economy topsy-turvy in terms of you know, the, the solvency of institutions like that. And so they, they've kind of acknowledged here, like we're not going to try and keep the PR machine going and make this argument that we're going to do this because they, they clearly can't without enormous ramifications for the stability of the economy at large. 
And, you know, it's, I don't like giving credit to bankers, but it's, it's really good to see, you know, some people actually step up publicly and state this, this definitively, instead of continuing to play this nonsense game that a lot of financial institutions do, where they pretty much misrepresent open systems in this ecosystem in a number of different ways to kind of paint them inaccurately in terms of the trade-offs and the downsides and then continue making, you know, vague non-committal statements that they're just going to build their own blockchain system and we won't need any kind of public open system, you know? Yeah, it, I agree with you on that. It's uh, when I read the story, I was also just like, okay, well, good. We start to see some of these guys come out and say that there's no real purpose in trying to create a central central bank digital currency. But um, I don't know. It'll probably be a while before we see uh, what's her name, Lindengrad or Lindegir. I don't know her name, but the IMF woman. She's always talking about drawing that special. That probably was it. Yeah. She's always going for that digital currency from a central bank. So I, I don't know. We'll probably see it go along for a while. The narrative of, you know, that's a good idea from a few places, but it's good to see a couple people say like, yeah, it's not really the brightest of ideas. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, you know, I think the cat's really coming out of the bag as far as blockchain bullshit over the last few years. And I got to say, Damn, it feels good. <laughs> yeah, right. It's like the ICOs and all that stuff, all the central bank digital issue. Now we just need to get rid of that uh, DLT talk, that distributed ledger tech talk. Mm -hmm. All right. And so audio, uh, stop feeding idiots in the troll box. Uh, we're at that topic you wanted to hear about. <laughs> right. So... Um, Regarding uh, BitPico's um, Bcash stress test, um, Alyssa Hertag from or Coindesk has kind of dumped out a pastebin with uh, a few questions that she was able to get answered from uh, BitPico regarding the attack that they're uh, going to be going through. And um, so parts of it, um, you know, no part, you can jump in after I get through this, uh, kind of correct anything I might be misanalyzing. I, I, parts of it though, I think have some potential merits and downsides for their network, but other aspects of it, I'm like, honestly, just shaking my head and wondering how somebody can really be this stupid. <laughs> so, um, they're pretty much, um, kind of offering the same kind of narrative they did when they uh, DDoS the Lightning Network, um, pretty much overloading nodes with the uh, amount of open files to attempt to crash nodes, which was quickly patched and really had no long lasting effect on the Lightning Network. But um, what, what they're pretty much looking at here is level DB, the, um, the database that is used to manage the UTXO set. Um, and looking at the fact that um, pretty much creating an attack block that is 32 megabytes. When, and for those who aren't aware, an attack block is effectively a, um, a block filled with transactions um, structured in a way to be as costly as possible in terms of script and signature validation. Um, 
would blow up to the point that it would require, um, according to them, 200 gigabytes of RAM to actually process and go through the uh, UTXO set update, which would corrupt the uh, UTXO set and pretty much crash the node. And so if their analysis of uh, an attack block structured this way and the resources it would require to actually go through the UTXO update process is correct, then this alone could cause a lot of serious problems for the network. If they were able to actually mine or successfully mine a, a block like this at a proper network difficulty, this could crash mining pools. This could crash exchange nodes, depending on the resources available on whatever VPS they're running them on and whether or not they have it structured to pretty much automatically scale up available resources if the resource demand grows. And, you know, th this, could, this could potentially just smash the network to a halt. And, you know, I, I'm sure, like, you know, th th it wouldn't kill the network because th there are a lot of, you know, ancillary services built on uh, cryptocurrencies like this out there, I would imagine, that have pretty much all of the blockchain data stored in conventional databases. And so given that, like, it would be a gigantic pain in the ass for them and would be a hilarious popcorn moment for me. But even potentially if every single node on the network had its database corrupted and crashed, simply a single database out there that has all of the information stored in a traditional database that would not be reorged or corrupted like like the node itself would be enough to pretty much you know re-serialize that in the format that a node could deal with and bootstrap the network again but i think it would very clearly demonstrate that you know th this this is not a sustainable scaling path and that even right now at just 32 megabytes without like safety checks in place in terms of consensus and policy rules, the cost to actually run a node safely is much greater than people are, are projecting right now. But you know, th this, this part, which I think could actually pose serious problems from the network aside, what they've been doing um, in terms of spinning up Sybil nodes is apparently what they're, they're gonna try and do is crowd up all the connections for miners out there with these Sybil nodes, and then in pulling this attack, effectively try to isolate specific miners and prevent block relays to them, and then try to get the network to fork off in a number of different directions as they isolate miners and pretty much manipulate them into building into a, a number of divergent chains. Now this part of the attack I like, you know, th this is ridiculous. Like th this is a group of people that has previously claimed to carry out the 2X um, fork back in uh, last year, even though everybody had pretty much uh, called it off uh, right before the actual fork date and nothing ever came of it. Like none of the hash power they claimed to have that they claimed was actually going to follow through with it did anything. And they, they've made a number of claims in the past about having a large amount of hash rate. So as far as actually isolating, e even successfully isolating the miners, I think is absurd because all they need is a single connection to an honest node. 
and they will be relayed a block from the legitimate chain. So the, the chances of success in terms of actually performing the eclipse attack necessary for that, I don't think are very high. But, you know, I've seen, I've seen a lot of people out there speculating that this is, I guess, a, a false flag um, to pretty much try to pull an attack on Bcash that would intentionally fail and then claim that it is resilient in the face of an attack like this. And honestly, I could definitely see Bcash supporters attempting to spin it this way if this attack is completely unsuccessful. But personally, I don't really think that that's what's going on here. I mean, like, this is a group of people that has made very bold claims for a number of different things in the past. And, you know, either they've never materialized or they did, and they had nowhere near the effect that they were boasting. Like, for instance, the, the denial of service attack on the Lightning Network, which was trivially dealt with and had no lasting effect on the Lightning Network. And in the instance of that attack, they were very clearly from the start putting this in the terms of this is a stress test. Like this is not we're trying to actually break things to fuck things up. We're legitimately just trying to probe weaknesses to assist people in hardening the network. And so, you know, personally, I don't think this is any kind of false flag or anything. I just think this is a group of people who's trying to really make a name for themselves, throwing out very bold, like, you know, grandiose claims, and then attempting to kind of build that reputation. But um, They are making a good job. You are talking about them. <laughs> well, I mean, like, the, the lightning attack, it did happen, Milpar. I mean, it didn't grind the network to a halt, like they said, and it was trivially patched, but, you know, it actually happened. So... Um, you know, I'm going to be waiting to see how this actually plays out in the long term, because, you know, if they are correct in their assessments, as far as the resource demands to go through a UTXO update process with a block like this, like, I mean, unless people right now are ensuring that they have far in excess of the resources for their nodes to deal with something like this, like this could very seriously disrupt the network. Like this could take mining pools offline. This could crash exchange nodes. Like this could cause a lot of disruption just with the block itself, not even taking into account their claims of Eclipse attacking miners and trying to fragment the chain into multiple chains. Yeah, you know, I'm, I don't know how successful the attack's gonna be, but you know, I'd like to see it have some success. I mean, it's just like uh, a lot of, different things that you could do right there, just trying to knock a node offline and, you know, but you're like, you're saying, you know, they just have to have one, you know, trusted node to, you know, bring everything back together. But I mean, I guess they would have to do a fork if that was the case, if it brought the network to a halt, like, um, no, they, they wouldn't need to fork. They would just need to like get the chain fed back out there. But I mean, like, e even if the chain like was, like restored, like everything came back online. I think if this actually happened and was that bad, this would just completely destroy Bcash in terms of market support and price. Like that, this would take their entire assertion that their scaling roadmap is viable and just throw it in a trash can. Like you, you could not just deny this and claim that their their roadmap will work in the long term if this actually happened. 
yeah, it's where, you know, I don't know. I'd like to see a little bit of success out of it, but, um, you know, like we're saying, not sure how much, uh, how much we'll see out of it, but, uh, hopefully we'll see some success. Mm-hmm. All right. No, no, no thoughts on the, the impending doom of Bcash. <laughs> Anybody else? Just ready for it to happen. Bcash, Bcash, Bcash. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. Got two more to go through, so let's try and burn through. Um, do, 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 do. So yesterday was a very awesome day. Um, in terms of uh, the Lightning Network. Sea uh, Lightning has gone through a complete rewrite and is now released version 0.6. And we have now hit the point where um, Async Seclair, uh, LND by Lightning Labs, and now Blockstream Sea Lightning are all in beta. And yeah, woohoo! So I kind of looked through uh, some of the updates here. Um, blah, brain fart. I had something I was going to say, and then I farted. Okay. It's okay. Uh, give me, give me some time to say goodbye, guys, because I have to go. Ah, sorry, we stretched the time limit. Was trying to get us in there, but uh, poop. It's okay. I was expecting it. It always happens. So thanks for the show, and see you, see you next time. Mm-hmm. Take care. All right. So Sea uh, Lightning complete rewrite. Um, one of the biggest changes here is they pretty much modularized everything so that the the code base is a lot more clean and. So it's a lot easier to kind of interplay with different pieces and, and swap different things out. But a, a lot of the, the feature updates, um, first off, uh, previous versions required direct interface with a full mode. And what they've done now is instituted a lightweight mode, which um, can interact with things like uh, this Spruned client. Um, there's a link to the GitHub in the article, which is in the show notes which is pretty much just a, uh, a light client that can query blocks on demand selectively. So you, you don't have to deal with the, like a, the entire chain state update and so on and so forth. And this you know, allows it to run on a lot of lightweight clients. So now you know, people can tinker around with this on a Raspberry Pi or if they feel particularly adventurous, uh, try to hack something together on a mobile device. But um, you know, that's some nice progress because it's going to be quite a few years until most people can actually run a note on their phone. Uh, <laughs> mine really stresses my phone to the absolute limit and is not practical in everyday interactions. And um, They've also streamlined the gossip protocol to uh, be a little more selective in the information it's querying instead of just pretty much demanding a full uh, network state update on the entire network. Um, They've redone the entire API and um, going forward from here are planning on maintaining backwards compatibility with this. So, um, you know, building any kind of applications on top of this, it's going to be a little more stable and app developers can have uh, more certainty that the API isn't just going to change out from under them. 
Um, they've now instituted a, a full wallet in the client. Um, previously, um, there was only the channel management um, logic. So as far as dealing with on-chain transactions, you pretty much had to fumble around dealing with uh, raw transactions. So no more of that. This is now a fully capable wallet that can deal with on-chain transactions and lightning channels. Um, they have built-in Tor support. So now you can register as a hidden service and receive incoming connections over Tor, which I don't know about you guys, but personally with me is the reason I have only used the async mobile wallet so far. I am not too fond of the idea of blasting my public IP address out there. So now uh, anybody tinkering with C Lightning, you can set stuff up and run it at home without doxing yourself over the internet. And they have updated uh, the payment logic to um, <clears throat> pretty much automatically retry payments uh, with routing failures and introduced a little bit of uh, randomization in the route selection, um, pretty much to try to move towards a little more privacy so that depending on the, the candidate routes, your node is requested when attempting to route a payment. There's um, a little more unsurety from any other network participants point of view, not involved in the actual payment as to which route you actually selected to route a payment through. And um, as far as the overall architecture, like I think like, you know, when, when they first uh, announced that they were doing a lightning client, my immediate thought was kind of cringe. Why God, oh, why would you write something like this in C, <laughs> which is, one of the most low-level languages out there uh, that is widely used, and you know, kind of, kind of looking at how it's evolved over time, though, you know, I think they've done a really solid job in working with that language in a solid architecture, and pretty much what they've done um, with with Bitcoin, you you pretty much have the uh, Bitcoin D daemon that handles all of the the node logic, and everything is kind of rolled into that. Whereas with C Lightning, they've actually broken everything up into independent uh, daemons that interact with each other. And this is, you know, good for stability and also, more importantly, very good for uh, security. For instance, um, they're the two of the different daemons are the GossipD and HM, or HSMD. And Gossip D pretty much handles the peer-to-peer uh, -peer logic, querying for uh, routes and et cetera. And the HSMD is pretty much um, what manages and interacts with the private key. And this is the only daemon in this client that actually directly interacts with your private keys. So any other aspect of the client has to interact with this daemon in order to get access to private keys or do anything like th this daemon handles everything for all the other ones and so this has a, a lot of good um, benefits as far as security like you, you can pretty much on a process level institute things like se linux or app armor take take a, a lot of uh, security precautions as far as isolating that specific daemon and making sure that it is secure as possible and can also even go you know a step further and containerize everything with something like docker so that you're you're isolating the attack surface on the operating system level as far as what an attacker would have to do to actually gain access to your private keys like if you were to dockerize everything 
like they would have to effectively interact through attacking something like the gossip daemon which would when dockerized effectively have to on its own like image in its own operating system interact with a entirely different operating system and compromise that so you're adding more layers of things that would have to be attacked and compromised to successfully gain access to your private keys. And then as well, like with the modular nature of this, you can, in the end of the day, swap that out and replace it with something that would interact with an actual hardware device. So like I've said quite a few times in the long run, I fully expect people to be developing hardware wallets with their own internal logic to handle signing transactions on Lightning Network. For instance, um, only automatically signing a transaction if it in net increases your channel balances so that you would be able to leave a, a node at home running to route payments for other people and know that your device is only going to approve a, a payment channel update if it winds up with you having more money in all of your channels so that you can kind of just let that autopilot by itself and be a lot more confident in the security of your private keys because you know this by nature requires your your wallet effectively being hot to actually interact with the lightning network as a, uh, a middle routing node and you know it's <clears throat> lightning network is making a lot of great progress i mean you know blockstream's finally up to par with uh, the spec, so they are fully spec compliant now, um, like LND and Declare. Um, I, I know everybody uh, is probably familiar with the L2 proposal, but they have put forth this proposal with a new BIP to pretty much replace the penalty-based um, payment channel state construct. And really, I'm looking forward to seeing what uh, Blockstream does in terms of Lightning development in uh, the future. I mean, they've really been putting out a lot of fucking solid work lately. Yeah, man, like, uh, you know, just great to hear all these, uh, you know, these lightning network developments coming into uh, in, to the frame where it's all getting cleared out and all the work coming done. I mean, we got Satoshi's place. I just saw something on Twitter about there's a Satoshi's wheel or something else or Satoshi spin a new lightning uh, game coming up. And yeah, I need to uh, resync this uh, C lightning I got on my node and uh, actually just get that thing up and running. Now that uh, that's up, to, and uh, we just had a core update too. I need to do that as well. Mm hmm. All right. So, um, ramble for a minute, guys. I need to go get something to drink because my throat is drying out like a desert. <laughs> All right. Man. All right. Well, yeah. Let's see. Uh, just gonna ramble a minute, I guess. Is anybody here with me? Because I think uh, Janine's taking off. AK, you here? I'm still here. If someone needs to talk, you're still here. Yes. Okay. I am. I am madly typing something right now, which I will share. Some obviously my presenters know, but the audience doesn't. I'm writing something at the oh, moment that, that I will a, share at the end of the episode. <laughs> is that conference? Uh, when is that? Like, oh. Uh, the, the Hackers Congress? Is that what you're writing up a presentation for? No, I, I'm doing the thing related to the story I talked about today that I mentioned oh. in the group chat. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, that's right. It will be entertaining, to say the least. <laughs> All right. Oh, man.
All right. Thank you for running interference, though. I was not going to be able to make it through this last one. <laughs> All right. We just got one more left and then some final thoughts, and we'll be out of here. Mm-hmm. All right. So um, a lot of people have been asking questions about uh, CASA, um, the company Jameson Lops working for now uh, that he's left Bitco's privacy model seeing as they're pretty much attempting to create uh, multi-factor solutions for very high net worth individuals. And so he wrote up a pretty good breakdown pretty much of their privacy model in terms of the trade-offs that are made uh, as opposed to doing something completely by yourself. And so obviously they want to kind of isolate um, your private information and retain it at absolute minimum um, that they can, but given the fact that this is pretty much a service interacting with a third party, it's impossible to have absolutely no identifying information or personal information. All they can really do is attempt to minimize what they have. And so pretty much firstly, he he, he kind of really breaks this down at like absolutely every level, which I, I really appreciate. Um, so as far as entities that will know information uh, about you, first, the, um, your phone provider and their app ecosystem, like whether you, you're using Google or Apple, when you download their application, you are going to be letting Apple or Google know that you are using their services. And so the advice that uh, Jameson gives to kind of deal with this is get a different smartphone and create a new Apple ID or a new Google account that is used for absolutely nothing else to download this app. And advises if you're going to get something with a sell plan to buy it in cash um, as a, a prepaid no contract phone or just get a phone with no plan that you will only use over a Wi-Fi network. At the next level, um, obviously, if you are not using any... Uh, anything to counteract this, your ISP is going to see that you're connecting to CASA servers when interacting. And so the advice here is obviously take preventative steps with something like a VPN or Tor. In the case of a VPN, you would be shielding yourself from your ISP knowing that you're interacting with CASA servers, but your VPN server would then know that you're interacting with CASA. So to really take it to an extreme level, uh, Tor would really be the only way to kind of isolate completely anybody from knowing you're interacting with CASA servers. And now we go on to the blockchain or crypto network level. Um, obviously, as a transparent public blockchain, every activity on the network is completely publicly visible. And seeing as CASA is using a three of five multi-sig scheme to allow you access and allow CASA to assist you in recovering your coins if you were to lose a number of devices um, associated with this. Um, he pretty much breaks down the uh, total UTXO set in terms of the different um, scripts that are used to encumber the coins. And you can see here, um, in the amount of Bitcoin, this red bar right here, which is an uh, amount of Bitcoin, this is roughly a little more um, than one and a half million coins currently locked in a three of five multi-sig scheme. But in terms of individual outputs, 
it is a very small amount. If you can see here, um, the red line is almost non-noticeable. So as far as blockchain forensics are concerned, using a three of five multi-sig scheme in, in tracking the outputs, you are fairly identifiable. And now if you've taken all the precautions he's advised as far as, you know, app ecosystems, your internet traffic, you can firewall your actual identity from being connected with these coins, but there is still the ability to associate the outputs themselves with a high degree of certainty with uh, Casa as a company. And then moving along, um, obviously, as um, <clears throat> they have two of the keys for this scheme to assist you in recovering your coin should you lose uh, one or two of your devices or keys, they need some way to interact with you. For instance, in replacing lost devices, they would need your address to ship them to you. Um, his advice here is either get a, a private mailbox or a PO box, or um, if anybody's unaware, in the United States, the United States Postal Service actually allows you to have something shipped to a post office and then held for you there at that post office. So you can show up there and simply provide your identification and pick up the package there so that CASA is not even aware of your address, but you are still able to receive a, uh, a new hardware device from them. And then lastly, um, in the event that you have you know, lost in, um, a device or devices from your side of the key setup and need them to assist you in moving or recovering the coins to set up a new one, they need some way to actually verify your identity. But they very much do not want to actually collect things like your name, your you know government ID, your place of residence, if they can avoid it. And so right now, what they're planning on doing is effectively going through a, a internet video session and making a video and audio recording of you. So that at least until, you know, um, machine learning techniques like deep fakes get a lot better than they are right now, you know, that would be all you would need. But you would simply need to get on, you know, go through a voice confirmation, show your face. And then from there, they would be able to verify you and assist you in the recovery process. Now, obviously, in the long term, it is pretty much guaranteed that things like deepfake is going to get to the point where this kind of verification method is going to be fooled. And in the long term, they're going to have to rethink and try to find some alternative to this. But in the meanwhile, this is a method where you can you know, have the ability to verify yourself with them for the recovery process without fully doxing yourself to the point you do to interact with a centralized exchange. And, you know, after kind of really looking at this, I, you know, I really do have to applaud this company, at, you know, despite being a third party attempting to offer people a service instead of encouraging them to manage keys entirely by themselves, they have very clearly taken every effort to absolutely minimize the amount of personal information that they collect on you and keep a record of in order to actually be able to verify your identity in providing the services. And personally, I, I would really hope that any kind of business or entity out there that legally could would kind of take their example and attempt to emulate it in some way. Yeah, man, that's a... Uh... 
you know, a lot of good OPSEC right there. I mean, uh, whenever I read through this, it was just like, oh, man, this is uh, good information for anybody trying to just uh, set up some good OPSEC. So, um, yeah, but uh, CASA, you know, definitely interesting uh, project Jameson Lop's working on. And, you know, it sounds like he's got a bunch of good ideas to, you know, still keep uh, anonymity there and where available, you know, and trying to set up your uh, cold storage there. So, yeah, good job, Jameson Lop. Alrighty, guess we are at that final thoughts time. Uh, <laughs> you want to see if you can unmute yourself, Janine? I, I, I muted you because your mic was hot, and it's not letting me unmute you right now. Okay. Uh, yeah, I unmuted myself. All right. Well, who's got some final thoughts? I guess I, I will have one in a second. Here, I got this little joke, but that I was scrolling through when I was looking at that Zcash story and uh, thought that was pretty funny. All right, incoming thought. <laughs> loading, 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 loaded. Yeah, so <laughs> Zuku's salary on that whole... Uh, on that whole uh, information that came out, looks like Rhett might want to try to fork C Classic again, but put that Founders Reward back in there. <laughs> Good little uh, comment on the whole story there. Oh, all right. That, that is a good one. <laughs> one more final thought, no tweet or anything. It's like, uh, what is going on with Facebook and Coinbase, man? It sounds like something's going on. We're like, Coinbase is buying Facebook or Facebook is buying Coinbase. Ugh. With two names, it's just like it's a collision of just terrible. I think that that is just rumor mongering, but I oh, guess yeah. we will see. All right, Janine, let her rip. Okay, so I don't know if I broke any formatting rules, but I really don't care because I feel like I wrote it formally enough that they'll read it anyway. <laughs> so I basically described uh, the issue with the founder's reward and the uh, pie chart, which I don't know if we actually showed that on air, but you'll find it if you look through the show notes, because I think we included it. Um, yeah, basically, I outlined the uh, controversy that happened surrounding the conference. And uh, I mean, you can read it clearly. And then at the bottom, I suggested uh, behavior which is that they should reevaluate. And uh, let me pull up so I can read it. You just wrote this zip up during the show. Yeah, I said for suggested <laughs> behavior, the Zcash community should applaud this endeavor towards corporate financial transparency by those who have established a company and foundation tasked with providing development funding and direction for innovation in the Zcash ecosystem, but also use it as an opportunity to reevaluate whether this distribution plan still satisfies or has ever satisfied the public good needs and long-term sustainability of the ecosystem, specifically regarding prioritizing critical work like the creation and maintenance of wallets and other basic infrastructure. So there, I've submitted an issue. Um, fortunately, I cannot add my own labels. I will probably like edit this to add suggested labels because I have some ideas for that. Uh, but apparently I can't add my own labels, which sucks. Take that, Zuko. Ha! <laughs> yeah, let's see. Uh, maybe Red will fork Zcash with that in there. 
Ah oh, man, fucking rat, fucking rat. <laughs> How about you, scam? Any any thoughts? Oh. Um. Yeah, Ripple. What are they? Are they a security? Are they a blockchain? Are they a cryptocurrency? Only time will tell. They're a caterpillar. Security. <clears throat> all right, all right. Keep keep the stalling going. I I. I I need my meme. I forgot to get yeah. my meme. Ripple's a caterpillar about to turn into a butterfly that's going to turn into a splat mark on a windshield. All right. Got the meme. Incoming meme. All right, guys. This is my Perfect. final thought. And I'm sorry for the audio only viewers. You got to go look on YouTube. Tick tock, tick tock, tick tock, tick tock. See you Coming. next time, guys. <laughs> Later, everyone.